From Miami Law, I'm Aned Uges, and this is The Explainer. Which side are you on remains the question. Uh, and it was revived uh, so intensely. And really, my work on this paper really kicked up hard uh, after the, the events in Charlottesville uh, now a few years ago. Uh, when all of a sudden the clash was right there in front of us again. Uh, and so that's really the question that's saying it is the, the, the past is present. It is here right now. Welcome to season nine of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Moore versus Dempsey, the path-breaking Supreme Court case resulted in the overturning of the murder convictions of 11 black men sentenced to death as a result of a racial massacre in 1919. A footnote in history or guide to the past and present movement. Let's go to Charlton Copeland, Associate Dean for Intellectual Life with the interview. Hi, this is Charlton Copeland and I'm here with my esteemed colleague, Patrick Gudridge, who, um, who has written a really great piece on Moore versus Dempsey, um, the the subtitle of which is Writ Large. Uh, and Patrick and I are going to be chatting for the next few minutes about, about this piece and about what it means and, um, and why we ought to care. Um, so thank you, Patrick, for being here. Well, thank you, Charlton. Uh, the first thing I should say, uh, as we are approaching an anniversary, uh, Moore versus Dempsey is a decision of the United States Supreme Court. Uh, it was decided on February 19th, 1923. Uh, so we are running up on the 100th anniversary of, of an opinion uh, that, that has largely disappeared uh, from the consciousness of judges, lawyers, law students. And I want to talk to you about that. So you, the, the beginning of the paper is about the incredible acclaim that accompanies this decision by the likes of Walter White and W.E.B. Du Bois when it is decided. And then, in some sense, we move uh, a generation or so, 40 years later, and some of the leading lights at least in the academy uh, have, in some sense, marginalized it. Why, what explains that? Well, you have to explain both halves. Uh, the first half, it's, it's easy to understand why the NAACP, Du Bois and company were so astonished and thrilled by the decision. They didn't get decisions like this very often from the Supreme Court. Uh, this was the first case in which they'd put any of their money uh, into uh, actually paying for a lawyer. Uh, the lawyer that they paid for was a, a, a very old ex-Confederate officer uh, who lost the case in the Arkansas Supreme Court uh, and then promptly died. Uh, at that point, uh, another lawyer uh, who had been paying attention to the case more or less on his own, uh, Scipio uh, Africanus Jones, uh, picked up the work uh, with the acquiescence of the NAACP kept it alive and got it to the United States Supreme Court. He himself uh, had been, as they used to say, born a slave. 
uh, uh, become a lawyer, a, a quite successful one. Um, uh, but the NAACP decided that he wasn't going to argue the case in the Supreme Court. That would be just too much for the Supreme Court. And besides, one of their principal benefactors and 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 guiding lights, Morfield's story, was the person who did that sort of thing. Uh, but Jones's habeas petition, um, which was enormous, um, um, uh, caught the attention of Justice Holmes, who was sitting on the court. William Howard Taft was the chief justice at that point. That's the era we're in. Uh, Holmes, for complicated reasons, got interested in it. We know that, uh, that he actually was interested in it, that he actually read the petition uh, and decided that this was about something important and dealt with it in the usual Holmes way, which is he wrote one paragraph, perhaps explaining his thinking uh, and, and just a few paragraphs on the backdrop of the case. Uh, that didn't help the case last uh, in the, as a general matter in law schools and the like. Uh, on the other hand, it was the first time something like this had occurred in the Supreme Court, this particular decision, more of that in a moment. Uh, it, it, uh, uh, it wanted a lot of prominence uh, for a while. Uh, and then it was overwhelmed by the Warren Court, by the, the very success that it, in some senses, pushed along. Can I interrupt you for one of second? Of course. Because in the, in, the, in the paper, you, you assert that if one reads those cases, the, the sort of canonical cases of the Warren Court era, you see flashes, if I'm not misusing the, 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 the imagery that you give us, flashes of Moore versus Dempsey. What, what are those? Well, one, sometimes we know about the flashes because the justices flash for us. Uh, Hugo Black and Felix Frankfurter agree in a famous habeas case at the beginning of the 1950s that they will do nothing in the opinions that they're writing uh, that will put in question Moore versus Dempsey. It's just too important. Uh, but what Moore versus Dempsey did uh, was not only address uh, the problem of what we used to call the lynch mob, uh, which is something much larger and more complicated than that. Uh, uh, but it, it, it continued to be pertinent as the police replaced the lynch mob uh, in, in, in these sort of uh, uh, racialized uh, uh, criminal uh, settings. And the question of how you manage the police and how judges would do that uh, was a, a very important question in the 1930s and 40s. And the Supreme Court took a lot of cases before Hugo Black said, Let's just incorporate the criminal procedure provisions of the Bill of Rights, along with the other provisions we've already incorporated as applicable to the states through the 14th Amendment. Uh, at that point, state judges and federal judges alike uh, will be following the same set of rules uh, and through habeas corpus jurisdiction and other ways, we'll be able to, in effect, train the state judges uh, to get them up to federal speed and the, keep the federal judges in the business of watching over the state judges, and we will move things forward. Of course, when they did decide that, and as they began to move in that direction, and as they began to move through selective incorporation to do this sort of thing, it became apparent that the state courts were now working for the federal government in a way that struck many people as surprising. And 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 a, a, might it have struck Holmes as surprising? In no, 
No, it would not have struck Holmes as surprising because Holmes understood that Moore versus Dempsey was set in a wartime environment. That is, that the the federal courts were at war with an alternate constitution. So I want to. This is this and, is, and that's why it wouldn't have bothered Holmes at all. But but it bothered greatly Paul Bator. Who, I was about to. That's that where was I was like, headed. So you cite to Paul Bator. Oh yes, the the imagery of war. Mm-hmm. is one that you and I have talked about a lot and that you have talked a lot about with respect to Holmes and this period. Paul Bator, by 1963, says the war is coming to a close and 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 we should put away some of those tools that were tools of a warring age. Bator, at this point, who... who actually taught uh, taught me federal courts. Uh, Bator was, was was very young. He was obviously taken uh, strongly by the civil rights movement. He, he I think he he truly was thrilled at what he saw was happening. Uh, and he thought the war was he thought, yes, the civil rights movement had triumphed. Uh, and and it was time to return to normalcy and normalcy was federalism states. Courts were part of state government. State criminal law was part of state law. That was not the business of federal courts. Federal courts were supposed to do other things. We need to unwind our war footing, he thought, uh, even as the, the, the Warren Court program was getting up and running. Uh, and of course, his view in this very famous uh, and, uh, article, famous in a narrow circle, but famous, uh, was rejected immediately by the Supreme Court by Justice Brennan in, in favor of Cisnoia. But, but to Bator's great surprise, came around again in the 1980s as new justices came in, grabbed it, and, and started moving federal judges out of the habeas corpus business into the complicated environment in which we know them to be working today. So I want to I come back to the article because this article is really, it's, it's poetic. Um, in, in a lot of ways. And so I want to come back to the way in which you or the role that you describe the habeas petition playing, both for the court, but also how it imagines or tries to imagine this relationship between the mob and the law. Could you sort of explain that a little bit? Yes. Um in some sense, you have to see the petition to really see what happened. And I know. I was hoping that you might have some pictures in here of, well, the, I, of I, those paragraphs I, that I, you described. I, I, I didn't, <laughs> uh, but I have the whole thing. Uh, a wonderful librarian at the University of Arkansas who talked to me for about an hour uh, agreed at that point that she would send me what she said, you know, this is sacred text. She sent me a, a Xerox of 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 the habeas petition, which I had never seen, mm. nobody really had ever seen, uh, and and it was all, of course, typed with great fierceness, uh, and and it was nothing but semicolon. Semi every, every sentence was a juxtaposition of semicolon phrases, and every sentence would go on for pages. It was an extraordinary thing, um, and 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 in that sense, it was visually a work of art. But what it enabled him to do was to put side by side things that were going on in the courts and things that were going on in the streets and in the fields where literally hundreds of 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 black people were being murdered over the space of several days by their white neighbors. Uh, uh, all of these things uh, were happening simultaneously in the petition so that when Holmes reads the petition, uh, uh, 
uh, he sees the whole picture. It's very unusual. He sees the whole picture, that this is something very large indeed. This is, says Holmes, always remembering his days as a soldier, as a, as a kid. This is war, he says, and it's war in which the courts are directly fighting. It's not war they are reviewing. It's war in which they participate when they exercise jurisdiction. And that's what he says. We have jurisdiction. Take charge, he says, to the federal so district I judges. Come, I want to come back to this because and, – and, and, and part, of, part of this conversation, uh, blessedly and perhaps problematically for the listeners, is a conversation that I've been having with Patrick for over 10 years. That is to say, I know something about what you think about what Holmes is thinking about the courts at this time. How does this petition resonate with because sometimes Holmes looks like he's he's saying to the branches, leave the courts out of this. If you can't do better than this, then don't get us killed, which is in some sense your phraseology. How does this pull Holmes in some sense back into the arena and the courts back into the arena? Holmes said Holmes understood uh quickly uh that the contest between white supremacy and the 14th Amendment was so intense and bitter and deadly uh, that those who were in the contest on the side of the 14th Amendment literally put their lives at risk, uh, uh, either as individuals asserting 14th Amendment rights or judges, et cetera. Uh, and the judges in this case, in the in the courts below, at every opportunity, bailed out of the cases and ran away uh, because it was just too dangerous. Uh, Holmes had been involved in a, in, a, in a contempt case a few years earlier in which a state law enforcement officer, a sheriff, uh, had uh, uh, worked with a lynch mob to remove from a federal facility or a state facility holding a case for the U.S. Supreme Court so that the poor individual uh, could be uh, uh, tossed off a bridge uh, uh, as, as part of an appalling lynching. And, and that sheriff was charged by the Supreme Court with a federal crime, was convicted, uh, was imprisoned uh, for a significant period of time, uh, was released. Uh, as he was released, he put on his Confederate war uniform, <laughs> came back to Chattanooga, and was greeted by a warring, by a, an applauding crowd. This was the environment in which Holmes already knew he was part of. And to read this was simply a flashback. I mean, if you want to say this is just a flashback, if you want to go Vietnam era, uh, Moore versus Dempsey is a flashback for Holmes. Uh, and we can show that. That's easy to show, actually, uh, in, in other things we have. So in, um, in, in, in other parts, and I, we're, we're, we're running close to our time, but I, I, I can't end before I, I bring this to, to you and, and, and try to think about it a little bit for, for our time. And you've alluded to it uh, in, in what you just said. This, these, these warring sort of constitutional visions, these warring constitutional articulations. constitutions. What, what do we, that, that appears to be a, a lasting phenomenon as it were. Yes. And it, and it, and yes. How ought we to understand that? That is to say in this particular era in which uh, we, so many think, Oh, I thought we'd fought that fight, and 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 I and 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 we lose faith in having uh, at least won those fights or the value of those victories. 
What is your perspective on that from this? Which side are you on? That's the question we ask ourselves. Which side are we on? Are we with the 14th Amendment? Or are we with, as they used to say, the mob? The mob is a much more complicated phenomenon than that. Are we with courts as ways of, of intervening in, in people's lives? Or are we with human sacrifice as the way of establishing a, a, a social regime? That's the choice. Now we have different manifestations of each of the difficulties, each of the sides, the, the difficult and important sides now, but we can see them. Right. We are still talking about them. We can travel to Minneapolis and witness the problem. We, mm -hmm. can, we, we can talk about all sorts of modes of violence as, as ways in which we live, tragically, all the time. Uh, and the question of choice, which side are you on? remains the same remains the question uh and it was revived uh so intensely and really my work on this paper really kicked up hard uh after the the events in Charlottesville uh, uh, now a few years ago mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. when all of a sudden the clash was right there in front of us again uh and so that's really the question it's saying it is the 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 past is present it is here right now it is still part of our lives, and we can, in all of its difficulty and horror, the notion that we live in a complicated constitutional society in which human sacrifice was a standard form of establishing social norms is something we do not ordinarily think about. And that ultimately is the issue uh, much too difficult to uh, explore and analyze uh, in any way comfortably that Moore versus Dempsey throws you back into. And, 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 and this is uh, dear listeners, why it matters. Um, I want to thank you, Patrick, for this wonderful paper. I want to thank you for this fascinating conversation. Uh, thank you. You're very welcome. If I had more time, I would do a commercial for Charlton Copeland, but I don't have the time. Thanks for joining us for this season of The Explainer. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's show is sponsored by Miami Law's 7th Annual Class Action and Complex Litigation Forum, January 26th and 27th on the Coral Gables campus. For more information, visit law.miami.edu.